All right. Well, thank you for uh, coming to Esther uh, chapter 7. And uh, six um, chapters of um, nothing but interesting insights on God's providence, really. And uh, we've thought that it's kind of been a, a um, carry on through the Provident series that we had and for 26 weeks. This has just been six more weeks of those. It is fascinating how God um, works in here. Um, I told the Fierros or texted um, Manuel that we would pray for him. He texted something really exciting. I think that he has an opportunity to um, interview on the 29th with a professor at Clemson. So it would be super fun to have them back in the area. Um, I don't know many of the details about that, but I asked, or, um, I asked whether we could pray for him in class. He said that'd be great. So, uh, Papa, could you pray for Manuel and Sarah and um, God's leading in, uh, in their life as far as where they're headed next and uh, also for our Esther series? And then, Jared, if you would, let's read um, 1 through 10 in chapter 7 and go to it. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to come before your throne on a beautiful fall afternoon and uh, the study Esther, um, thank you in your providence that uh, you've arranged it so that Sarah and Manuel are uh, interviewing perhaps for a position at, at Clemson and could, uh, could well be coming back uh, nearer to us from a long way away in, in Iowa. And uh, uh, just pray that if this is your will and uh, desire for their lives and that of their family, that you would uh, uh, let it happen. Uh, I miss those guys, and uh, we all do, and and just pray for your providence to work. Uh, as it does in all things, and we've seen this in as in Esther. Um, you know, it's it's, it's amazing uh, in, in, in Piper's Providence book, he, he indicates that You'll be hated uh, by all for my namesake, uh, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And and we've seen that throughout uh, history in the in the church and in the way you've worked with Israel, we, with with Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Daniel and um, you know, and. Um, and now in Esther and, and Nehemiah and, and um, Ezra and, and uh, that your people will be hated for your name's sake and yet you will deliver them. So be with us this afternoon as, as we uh, open your word and teach on chapter 7 in Esther. To your glory, to your praise. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Papa. Jared, you read that for us? Yep. Esther 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with king es Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. 
For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Aswarus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Wow. Jared, what have you seen in the first six chapters, maybe for some folks that uh, haven't been here from the, from the get-go, kind of get us caught up um, on how this has all come about? Yeah, so I think one of the major themes in the first six chapters has been God's sovereignty through the prevalence of evil. And it doesn't matter if we see evil people doing evil things. God is still sovereign over every single moment of every single day throughout history. So we don't need to get all worried when we see people rising against us, when we see persecution, because God is still faithful to his promises. And even though his name perhaps isn't ever mentioned in this book, we still know that he's working and that he's He's going to be faithful. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Papa, you have had um, so many fun weeks of studying this. What would you say has struck you? I love what Jared said. Well, it uh, God's uh, providence and, and using evil, working through evil, uh, like you've indicated with the all things, it does include uh, evil, mm-hmm. uh, has to. Uh, but I'd like to, there's some literary techniques that kind of catch us up, especially for you folks that are just coming in for the first time, and this won't take but a minute, but it'll kind of an overview of Esther right where we are. Uh, the story begins, it's called uh, Just So Happens or Coincidences or Providences. Uh, the story begins with the Persian queen's timely dismissal, which opens the door for Esther's ascent. When a search has begun for a new queen, it just so happens that Esther's brought in for the competition. And it just so happens that she wins the favor of the eunuch in charge. It just so happens that Esther finds favor in the eyes of the king. After becoming queen, it just so happens that Mordecai is working in the king's gate and learns of the assassination plot. And it just so happens that his name is recorded in the king's book of memorable deeds. And there's a courtly oversight to reward him properly. When Haman becomes enraged at Mordecai, it just so happens that the lot is cast to find the best day for the destruction of the Jews falls almost a year away, giving the Jews ample time to prepare for that day. When Esther goes to plead with the king for her people, it just so happens that once again she finds favor with him. When she defers her request until the next day, it just so happens that Haman crosses paths with Mordecai again and becomes so enraged that he decides to execute him immediately instead of waiting 11 months down the road. 
While the builders are constructing the gallows through, through the night, it just so happens that Haman decides he can't wait any longer and goes to seek the king's permission in the middle of the night. Meanwhile, it just so happens that the king cannot sleep. It just so happens that the book of memorable deeds is brought in to be read, and it just so happens that the reader opens to the very spot where Mordecai's good deed is recorded. Immediately after the reading of the court's failure to reward Mordecai, it just so happens that Haman shows up, and it just so happens that the king omits Mordecai's name, allowing Haman to think that the king wants to honor him instead of Mordecai. After the humiliation of having to honor Mordecai, Haman comes to Esther's banquet, where she implicates Haman in the plot to kill her people. When the king leaves in anger and Haman begins to beg Esther for his life, it just so happens that the king returns at the very moment when Haman's pleading looks like an assault on the queen. When the king is further enraged, it just so happens that a eunuch points out the presence of the gallows, newly built, providing the king with a ready-made way to execute Haman. Again, any one coincidence on its might might prove intriguing at best, but the cumulative effect of all the coincidences is to suggest quite strongly that someone else is behind the scenes ensuring that the events line up in a certain way. Yeah, I thought that, that was excellent. That is, and it's such a great news that that's what's going on in our life. Oh, that's the whole story right there. <laughs> yep. Like Jared said, God's not mentioned in the book, but he's everywhere or orchestrating every event, and uh, that's what's that's what's throwing. Give us a timeline, Papa. Papa's our residential uh, historian here. Goodness gracious, Jerry. Timeline. We're, we're uh, what, seven years down the road now uh, uh, since uh, the beginning of the book. Okay. And as all this happens, I didn't realize this. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, we're, for a couple chapters now, we've been in that seventh year. And, but it's taken about seven years for Esther's yes. ascent to the throne and, and all, the, all the feasting. Yeah. And so... Uh, that's, and now, that, go ahead. No, and, that, and that's about where we are. And, 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 and actually, um, Xerxes only rules for 20 years, I think it is. And this is about uh, seven or eight years into his reign. So. Okay. And now this last part slowed down a little bit from the end of five. Um, well, I guess when um, he builds the gallows, look at that last verse in chapter five. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends said to him, this is after his how great am I party, where he had a party where we're pretty sure he had pictures about him and uh, it's all about me. Um, Haman's party. Let a gallows fifty cubits uh, high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. That's kind of where things were at an all-time high for Haman, and then it has uh, started to shift south um, from there for how things have gone to him, gone for him. So, but. At the beginning of chapter 7, he's still at a party with the king and queen. So even though things hadn't gone so well for him in chapter 6, um, he's got some, some things that he's still excited about. Um, we think while the king's eunuchs arrived there at the end of chapter 6 and brought him, um, brought him to the party. So Esther's timing, Al, um, Alistair Begg called this spilling the beans. 
his uh, her timing in spilling the beans is really amazing, and she's tactful and humble about this. She knows the king, and uh, we've seen all through Esther, he's a piece of work. He doesn't make one command until chapter 7, verse 10. The first time he commands anything is for Haman to be um, to, to be hung. Um, he's usually drinking, and uh, that changes his thoughts on a, on a whim. But uh, here's the great part. But all the events here, all that we know, and, uh, and one to be convinced of further today by the Holy Spirit, and hopefully this just um, changes the way we think through all of life, um, they're just like yours and mine. They're not accidental. They're ordained beautifully and uh, perfectly by our Lord. And so this whole book, like Papa mentioned, could be a commentary on Romans eight twenty eight. I think. Uh, and then how about the timing? I love the timing. As Papa was just reading about this leads to this leads to this. Um, there is no coincidence that uh, happens in our life that's not accidental. Um, God is always orchestrating. And never does he take a minute off or leave fate or our own devices. But uh, his timing is always perfect too. And I think that's what really is extraordinary in this one day of from the end of chapter 5 through all of chapter 7, what all happens in one day there um, is amazing. He's not ever mentioned, but he's always working. And, um, I, you know, I think I've said the phrase probably a hundred times, when man works, man works. When man prays, God works. But I think it's, that's not very complete. I, mean, I was thinking about that this morning and thinking, I think it's a true statement, but when man doesn't pray, God works. God, uh, you know. He's not God's dependent on our prayer. No, he's not dependent on that. Yeah, and I, um, in one of the commentators said, God is at work when Esther works, and he's also at work when she isn't working. And so that's the great news. And that goes with the Romans 8, 28, doesn't it? In the Holy Spirit in 26 and 27, prays for us when we don't know how to pray. So it's God who's doing all of this. It's not up to us. And that kind of goes with what Jared started us with. Even through the evil or the sin, God orchestrates and is not hindered. Job 42.2, no plan of his can be thwarted. And, uh, and we, that can just be a thrilling thought. Jared, um, help us from the beginning there on verse 1 um, about the timing here of, of the way Esther goes to the king. Yeah, so getting started here in the first verse, this is now Esther's second feast that she's prepared, and she's waiting until after they're, they've already eaten and now they're drinking wine. So at this point, we might be questioning, like, what is Esther doing? Is she procrastinating, going in to ask the king this stuff? But I think there's a lot of wisdom in what she's doing. I mean, she's waiting until the king has already drunken wine, so clearly the king is now on her side, and he's more susceptible to her requests. But... The application for us is that we need to be looking for golden opportunities to evangelize to people. And we need to be looking and being wise about how we go about sharing the gospel with people. I think about um, Acts 16 where that you have the Philippian jailer and there's this earthquake that shakes the foundations and Paul and Silas, they were in, they were in jail and their, their chains are loosened. And then the jailer comes up, he's about to kill himself and he says, what must I do to be saved? 
And in that moment, Paul shares the gospel with him and he says, believe in Jesus. So in the same way, we need to be looking and saying, when is this unbeliever that I'm talking to, when are they reaching out to me? What opportunities can I use to evangelize and to, to do God's will in that sense? Yeah. And you, Papa, can you give a brief testimony of how Caitlin did that um, in her dissertation on Friday? Oh, that was beautiful. That was uh, really wonderful. There were some of us that were blessed that attended uh, Caitlin's defense of her um, PhD degree. And uh, it was a small crowd. Most of them were academic. And there was a, actually a pretty good representation. You guys were there from um, um, North Avenue. And it was really kind of wonderful. And uh, she did an excellent job. So good that uh, I don't think any of us dared ask a question. We were given the liberty to ask questions on the heels of her presentation. But other than my brief distant memory of organic chemistry, I, I was dead in the water. And uh, she did a wonderful job in fielding the questions. And then uh, at the tail end of her presentation, uh, there's a picture of the cross. And she gave all the credit and all the glory to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who delivered her from the domain of darkness, presented her into the kingdom of his son. So, um, you know, that's, that's a pretty bold environment to do that. In fact, Grant was there and, uh, you know, he, just, he was just beaming all over for, on behalf of Caitlin. He reminded me that when he had to defend his, uh, there was no one allowed to be there because it was a shit during the shutdown. So. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of opportunities in lives, and, and you know, you were talking about the, the coincidences. I think if we journal more, and I'm not good at that, I think we would see these coincidences uh, more. Uh, that's why uh, Paul in particular reminds us to remember, 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 uh, because we forget, and, and we need to be reminded. So That's good. His past faithfulness. There is the way she goes about this, uh, Esther, here. Uh, Papa, do you have some comments on kind of how she, um, like Jared said, it almost seems like she's being a little bit slow and a little bit chicken, but she's pretty um, cagey in how she goes about this, wouldn't you say? She was very resolute. I, I um, you know, I, uh, she asked for prayer, as you remember, uh, uh, of her uh, ladies in waiting. She asked for them to pray, and she also asked Mordecai to uh, for three days of prayer in Susa, which was the capital and which is where they were located. And so um, uh, fasting, uh, you know, included prayer, didn't mention prayer in the book. Uh, I, you know, I've thought through this a lot and we don't want to read things into scripture, but to a Jew that was included, uh, prayer was, was included. And so who knows how, how God had prepared her. I mean, she uh, was more passive in the earlier chapters of Esther, but once Mordecai challenged her for a time such as this, you are queen. She rose up and, and uh, was accountable. Yeah, at the end of and, chapter. Yeah, and, and, and then, and we got to credit the Holy Spirit with, with uh, giving her the very words to use, the timing. You mentioned the, is she, is she hedging? Is she postponing? No, she, knew, she knows this guy. I mean, she is his technical queen, and she's been with him for a while now. 
and and he's, he's volatile. He's unpredictable. He's uh, uh, a narcissist. Usually, and and so she knows how to how to handle him. And so she just blurted right in, and and with her request, uh, you know, she's very cautious. She's she, she, you know, three times now he's promised her the kingdom, half up to half the kingdom, which which was probably an embellishment, but nonetheless. So she's she's won his favor. It even says that she's won his favor. Uh, let's see in verse uh, what is it uh, three. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for me, my wish, my people, for my request. Uh, this, this is a delicate task uh, to not accuse. You notice that she's not accusing Haman. She's not accusing the king. The king's culpable here because he's the one that signed the decree. Haman's culpable because he was the one that arranged all this. But So she doesn't call anybody out. She wants to, one, win the favor, make sure that she's in the king's good graces before she, and, and apparently uh, she did so. And because she, then she pleads her life and that of my people. So there she's including, now the king, I don't, I'm not sure at this point whether he knows it's the Jews or not. Now it's unlikely that, you know, that's escaped him by this point, but we don't know that. But now she's including herself in the plight of, of her people. Yeah. She, I kind of want to dissect verse 3 a little bit in the way that she goes up to the king and makes the petition itself. Um, we talk a lot about how the king is very similar to God the Father in the extent of his control over the world. And I think the way that Esther asked the the king here should be similar to the way that we approach God the Father in our own prayers. Um, she first says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king. She knows she's got favor with the king, but that doesn't stop her from saying, if I have found favor in your sight. He just said earlier, what's your request? Even half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. But in the same way, when we go to God, we know we're children of God, but we shouldn't be presuming on that relationship. We should be valuing and cherishing that relationship. Then she says, if it please the king. So now she's saying, if it's in line with your will, then can you do this? And the same way when we go to God, we need to be saying, not my will, but your will be done. It's very similar to the Lord's Prayer where Christ teaches us to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're looking toward the will of the king and not our own. And then the final thing she says is, let my life be granted me for my wish. And the same line, the, the um, Christ prayer goes, um, give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but forgive us our debtors, so on and so forth. But the nature of our request should be, could you provide us basic sustenance and could you allow us to do your will and not fall into evil? And the same way here, Esther is asking, in a very meek way for her people to be saved so that her people can worship God. That's great. How about how she reveals her, um, that she's a Jew? Baba? If you're you. Well, she says my people as my request and, and um, uh, my people are the Jews. 
Um, and it seems sure seems like the king doesn't know this at this point. Do you think? There's no indication in scripture that he, he that he knows. Yeah. But you would think, I mean, if, if one of the commentaries earlier said there were 15 million Jews in Persia, including Israel and, and the uh, main part of Persia. So it would be hard for him. And, and there were all these, after the issuing of this edict, there were all these demonstrations and mourning and all that. And you, you, would, you would think if he had any, of course, he was too busy having these feasts and and uh, other things, but uh, that he would have some semblance of what's going on. But uh, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Jared, what about uh, the way she reveals there? Yeah, going back to the evangelism thing, I think she's already done the easy part, which is setting up the feast and orchestrating this whole thing. She's already displayed her good works before the unbelieving king. But as we think through evangelism, just showing your good works to somebody is not going to cut it. You have to actually reveal the need for faith in Jesus Christ. And she she here reveals that she is now a Jew. This is the first time throughout the whole book that she's even associated with them. So we can't just stop at just doing good works before the unbelievers when we're trying to witness to them and evangelize to them. But we also must reveal the gospel through our words. No, I think that's what I appreciated about... Um the way Papa, when you're talking about Caitlin, the way she would take that 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 extra step, or when she just wasn't saying, um, you know, she really says, "This is who I am. This is what I believe." And uh, even in what might have been a little bit of a hostile situation, just similar to how, how um, Esther's doing that here, really good. Papa, any more on that before we get to uh, to verse six, where? Um, she she really changes Haman's mood in a hurry. Well, I thought about uh, and Jared what what you said and and um, you know our general discussion here about her tack and diplomacy and that type thing. And I was driven to James and the discussion about the tongue. Of course, Proverbs has a lot of good things uh, to say about the tongue as well. But you know, uh, uh, James 3, 5 says, so, so, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So um, so the tongue is a small member, member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire source of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So we need to be cautious and careful how we use our tongue, and I think Esther was doing that. Uh, she, um, she obviously uh, prepared herself emotionally for this. That's why the, that's why the several banquets uh, there wasn't the right time. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said she didn't have a f good feeling about the time, so she opted for another another feast. She's kind of setting up not only the king but Haman. Which causes him to have the insomnia. That didn't cause that, but well, which gave time for him to have the... Well, that's true, too. Yeah, that's right. He had the, the, because between the first and second feast, he had the insomnia. 
uh, which made him go to the record, which made him recognize mm -hmm. Mordecai. And, and even though, even though back to Haman for a minute, even though Haman comes to this banquet somewhat deflated because he now had to march mm. Mordecai through the city on the king's horse with his king's robes and be humiliated that way. He, number one, he didn't know that Esther was a Jew and he didn't know that he was going to get it, be exposed as he is in this second banquet. So he went there a little bit more humble, but still sure that that edict would take care of Mordecai 11 months from now and he'd be dead. Yeah. Right. Even if, if he couldn't do it with the, the Correct. yeah, that's, that's really good. Verse six, Esther said, a foe and an enemy. It's this wicked Haman. Um, I think NIV used, uh, said this vile Haman, the Haman was terrified before the king and queen, that uh, seems probably like, a, like an understatement there. Jared, any um, insights um, on that, calling out evil? Um, there's a, a parable in the New Testament where it talks about there's his father. He has two sons. One son says he's going to go do something, but he ends up not doing it. And then there's another son where he says he's not going to do it. And he ends up changing his mind and going and doing it. And so the, the moral of the parable is, which one did the will of the Father? It's the one who actually did the work at the end of the day. And I think I, I kind of want to compare Esther and Israel here in this section. We talked about earlier and a few weeks ago how Mordecai presented Esther with this choice here. He says, do you want to go the way of Israel, which has put us in this captivity in the first place, and turn away from God? Even though you profess God, they turned away from him many times. We saw Israel in the wilderness complaining all the time. We saw Israel with their idols. They always said, yeah, we're going to follow God, but they end up turning away. Or Mordecai says, you can be faithful, and you could go into the king, and you can make this petition on behalf of Israel. He presents her two choices there. And at first, Esther says... I don't really want to do that, just like the second son, but she ends up changing her mind and actually going into the king. So I think we need to be more like Esther in this sense, and we need to be humble about how we how we go about doing our works, but we also need to be faithful, and we need to actually go do the work itself. And Esther follows through in this section, and I think it's a, a good testament. Yeah, no, absolutely. It reminds me, somebody brought this to... Uh class this week and I had forgot how this how impacting this was remember um Elijah and the prophets of Baal this is first Kings 18 21 uh Jared reminds me of this Elijah came near to all the people and said how long will you go limping between two different opinions would the Lord say that about us right let's stand on let's not be of two different opinions let's not be on the fence let's not be lukewarm uh he goes on to say if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And so I think it's a good challenge for us here. Um, it After chapter 4, when the people fasted for Esther, you could see she was dead set on doing the right thing. Where, she, where Mordecai says, such a time as this. And wouldn't you say that's for all of us? Every minute is such a time as this. And then she says, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to 
I'm going to do the right thing. And, and so sure enough here, now in chapter 7, verse 6, she calls uh, Haman out. Um, I think that's a bit of an understatement that Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Can you imagine the jaw-dropping moment when Haman realizes, oh no, what have I got myself into at this point? Papa, any insights there? Well, it seems that that Esther and the king are working in concert here. I mean, he's the king, she's the queen, and and she's presenting these various options. And now finally, then the king asks her, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? So he, she, uh, he's, he's angry now, mm-hmm. which, which seems to be a, a, a regular uh, part of his personality. But he wants to know. Okay, give me, give me the answer. And then she responds, a foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman, then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Uh, again, they're mentioned together, king and queen, in concert. Uh, and he, he arose, I think we should move on, in his wrath, it says. Uh, his anger has now uh, gone to wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. He could tell. He knew this guy, too. I mean, she knew him, but he knew him, too, in a different light. Well, he's and been he, caught red-handed. Sir? And oh, he's yeah. He's been caught now. Like, just didn't know any of the this. The gig is up. Yeah, it, it sure is. Jared, um, what do you have there on calling out evil? Yeah, I think the way she goes about this is pretty extreme. And we have to ask, is this over the top? But... I mean, I was reminded of the story in Numbers where Phineas takes a, he sees people committing sexual immorality in the camp of God, and he takes a spear and he drives it through both of them. Mm-hmm. And it says the wrath of God was abated in that moment. So I think in circumstances and in times where people start to infringe upon the people of God and attack their well-being, we know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So I think... This type of response, the response to Esther, as she says, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman, this is necessary to purge the evil out of the camp, just like Phineas did. It's kind of the story of um, also of um, Samuel and Agag when, when uh, Saul refuses to take care of Agag and Samuel has to intervene uh, for the sake of the uh, of the Israelites and for the sake of God's curse against the Amalekites. And can you give us a quick little history on that? Because we're st- this is part of that. That's Agag right. Is is uh, represented by Haman here. Uh, that's right. Um, uh, the Amalek uh, Amalek was a son of Esau back a thousand years before this time, and. Uh, uh, the the uh, Malachites, uh, remember, at, at, in, during the Exodus, uh, attacked the people of Israel coming out from the rear, women, children, that type thing. And God issues a, a curse on the Malachites. This is a story, too, where Moses has his hands up and, and uh, Caleb and what was his name? Um, Joshua and Caleb? No, who was the other? Joshua was one of them, and 
anyway, had to hold his hands up. As long as his hands were held up, they were victorious over the Malachites. And when he, he drooped, so they put put some rocks under him so he could keep his he keep his hands up. So that was, and and God granted uh, victory over the Mal- Malachites. There was a curse. God, uh, you know, said, "I'm going to curse the Malachites to the third and fourth generation." And this is simply an extension of that. Haman is an Amalekite. And so that's, there's, there's this uh, curse, and we see it manifested here in uh, Esther. And this is deep hatred for the Jews. That's right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, Jared, could you read those last, this, this is where um, boy, things happen in a hurry. Uh, maybe eight all the way to the end again. Yeah, or I'll start at verse seven. There you go. Says, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Yeah, what you have, Jared? Um, I just want to look at the fact that Haman had all this time now to turn from his evil way to repent from his sin and he chose not to and Esther essentially slams the door in his face here and offers no chance at repentance at forgiveness and this is how God is going to deal with sin on the final day too people had all this time to turn from their sin to repent to seek the free offer of the gospel and they blatantly chose to persist in their evil And there will come a day that um, there is no more time for forgiveness. Essentially, forgiveness has an expiration date here, and God will one day judge sin. Mm, That's uh, well said. Today is the day of salvation, isn't it? And uh, never, ever wise to procrastinate um, on that. Papa, any insights there on those Verses toward the end. Oh, this is an interesting few verses. Uh, how we doing? Oh, we're, we've got time. Um, a couple things from D.A. Carson. Uh, no one but the king could be left alone uh, with uh, the queen. Uh, or if there, even if someone was in the room, they couldn't come within seven steps mm-hmm. of the queen. So that, that those were Persian kind of household rules. So the fact that uh, that Haman took these liberties, and he would be aware of some of this, <clears throat> I, I don't think he was trying to accost the queen. I, I do think that was the way the king interpreted it. Uh, but again, in his anger, I think he left the room because this is one of the few times that he had to actually think about what was going on. He typically would ask someone, well, what am, uh, someone, what am I going to do, one of his advisors? But instead, he left the room, went out in the garden to probably think for a minute, you know, how am I going to handle this? Comes back in and there's uh, Haman falling on his wife's couch, probably kneeling, asking for um, a help, uh, you know, asking for her help to intervene with the king. And it, it's like you said, it's, it's too late. This is not asking for repentance because he's not repentant. 
repenting of his sin. He's just asking. He knows his neck is on the line, and he's asking for help from her. Yeah. No, ab- absolutely. Um, and this is, the again, in chapter 7, verse 10, the king says, hang him on those gallows. Um, any insights on Harbona? I don't think uh, Haman was happy to hear from Harbona at this at this point. He he, and I, I was curious: Does Harbona either hate Haman, either, or really loves Mordecai, or maybe just wants to butter up the king? Like, hey, this would be a good good way to get in the king's favor a little. I think Harbona was mentioned back in well, here we go back in one ten. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, <laughs> boy, he had a merry heart, didn't he? Yeah, six uh, times he, I read he that. He commanded uh, Muhuman, Bitztha, Harbana, Bigtha. Bigtha was that one of the, one of your friends, Jerry. And Ab- Abagtha, Zethar, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king. These guys were really loyal to the king. I mean, they were his... Uh, uh, they weren't the princes of Persia, but they were his uh, close friends, advisors. They knew the protocol of the court. And uh, and incidentally, too, and, and lest we miss this, uh, in, where is it, uh, in 612, oh, he, and this is after he had to parade, I don't want to lose this little fact, he, after, after he had to pray Mordecai through the city, he covered his head, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning. He's mourning over the fact that Mordecai had been elevated, and he covered his head, mm-hmm. which is a sign of mourning. So he was already prepping. He didn't know how bad he had to prep. Yeah, and then now he gets his head covered by someone else. It was customary in the Roman world, in the Greek world, uh, one commentator said, and clearly in the Persian world, that when a sentence of death was issued, that that person um, that was on the receiving end had their face covered. And um, John Owen, quote, was, death was put to death by the death of Christ. And so here we see um, Haman dying, but um, I I love that quote by Owen. Um, Jared? Um, I thought the verse where it says... The verse eight, and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. I thought it's interesting that the narrator put the fact that it was the same exact place where they had been drinking wine. And I was reminded of Ecclesiastes eight, where it says, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So we see Haman with all his pomp now he was just parting just a few minutes ago, and in that same exact room, that room was now turned into an execution chamber for him. And so, in the same way, we need to understand that sin is vain, and there's no point in it, and it will eventually be judged one day. Wow, yeah. And for Haman, don't you see all those Proverbs um, that talk about how pride comes um, before a fall? There are certainly so many times where we see that do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day will bring and let another praise you and not your own mouth one day earlier just one day earlier before he's saying he's having the how great am i party and then builds the gallows now 
in the most amazing reversal is hung on the own, own gallows that he um, built for, for Mordecai. What a fascinating uh, change of events here. And again, perfect in God's timing. Don't you think there's going to be times this very week where things aren't looking favorable, you know, and you're like, oh, man, I, this is not going well. And it had to be, you know, for Mordecai and for Esther, that was uh, really about six chapters where things didn't look like were going well. And then uh, absolutely at God's perfect timing, he changes things. Papa? You, you mentioned one of the literary terms, peripatia. Uh, and and uh, one of the authors mentioned in the reversals. It's just another name, fancy name for reversal. It's a literary thing. Like uh, examples are Vashti's sudden downfall, Esther's rise, Esther's fear that she may perish, but finding favor from the king, Amos' joy at being invited to the banquet, which quickly turns into disgrace and that type of thing. So we see a lot of that also which makes us a fascinating read as well as a literary masterpiece and the Word of God. Oh, yeah. So fascinating. Jared, any final thoughts? Um, I, think, I think that it is tempting to read this story and to side with Mordecai or Esther and to see ourselves in light of them. But I think if we were honest with ourselves, then we would line up more with Haman through this story. And I think we need to have a humility as we read this to understand that if God were not merciful to us, then we should be getting the judgment that Haman is getting in this story. Wow, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, and uh, and that's certainly certainly the case. And let's think about it this week. Uh, once again, the quote that, that gripped me by the neck this week is, God is at work when Esther works, and he's also at work when she isn't working. That doesn't ever take the responsibility off us. We, sh- we are responsible, and God will use you. But what a comfort to know that when we're not doing like we ought, which is all day to some de- degree or another, God is still faithful. God's plan won't be thwarted. God will accomplish his purposes. God's still sovereign. He's still on the throne. His timing's perfect. And once again, that eradicates worry, stress, lack of forgiveness. All of those things go out the window if we'll really believe this and, and uh, take this to heart. Well, you know, we all have, um, I know this, we're reading Esther and there's, we've mentioned Daniel and, and others, but we all have those same options, those same opportunities in, in our life. Uh, you mentioned Caitlin in the classroom. We all have those moments when we can stand up and say, no, that's not right. Uh, that's not acceptable. That's not what God would want me to do. And, and I think that goes a long way in, 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 uh, as our testimony. Certainly our responsibility. Glorifying him, yes. That's good. Jared, would you pray for us? Yeah. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have to gather as your body and um, look through your word. Thank you for the book of Esther and all the wisdom that it provides us with. I pray that you would give us boldness in our evangelistic efforts and that we would be confident and we'd be faithful and we would follow through on the works that we need to do, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. Yeah, um, have a chance to read chapter 8 for next week.
Oh, we have next week off. Sorry. <coughs> Head to the Covenant series next week. 